Well, hello, everyone. This is JB with Not By Works Ministries. Thanks so much for uh, listening to the podcast today. It is Monday, May 1st, 2023, and I am delighted to be joined by a, a group of folks uh, that we've uh, had the pleasure of uh, doing a podcast with before. It's a Bible study uh, based out of Florida, I think, although everyone's joining uh, this particular recording from across the country. In fact, we've got folks stretched about as far apart as you can get in this country from up in uh, the uh, Seattle area. Is that right? Or Spokane. Spokane. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spokane. I forgot. Yeah. So Spokane, which is Eastern Washington over there on the Idaho border, and then all the way down into the Orlando area. And um, just recently, I actually was in a discussion with my wife and another relative, and we were kind of speculating on the two furthest points in America. And so we were doing some online research on the spot, you know, how far is it from Maine to, you know, San Diego and from, you know, Bellingham, Washington or Blaine, Washington, all the way down to Miami and that kind of thing. So uh, you're not quite as far apart as you could be, but it's further than I'd want to uh, travel with a, a two-year-old, let's put it that way. So um, well, welcome, you guys. It's so such an honor to be with you. This is one of those uh, Zoom sessions where, uh, as we've done many times, those of you that listen to our podcast uh, have heard a few of these. Uh, we just open the, the mic here for folks to ask questions, just a general theological and biblical Q&A. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to our discussion tonight. Uh, as we kick off the week, though, I want to remind you of a couple ministry uh, items here for Not By Works Ministries. Don't forget our Prophecy Night, uh, Tuesday night, tomorrow night. And uh, we're looking forward to continuing our discussion of some of the manifestations of uh, evil spirits and kind of what Satan is doing in the unseen realm as he prepares uh, for this ultimate battle, which, of course, he's already lost, but he just doesn't uh, doesn't really have a clue. So he's continuing uh, to fight. Uh, and so we're, we're, we talked about some demonology and angelology and some of that stuff and many of the manifestations of paranormal type activity uh, last week and we'll continue that discussion uh, tomorrow night and then uh, just a full week ahead i've got actually four interviews between now and wednesday night with different radio and tv shows so we'll be posting those if we're able you know some outlets don't allow us to have access to the recording uh, so we all we can really do is link you up to their uh, station or their show, but uh, to whatever extent possible, we always like to repost uh, the different shows that we do. So you can look forward to that. Randy will be back on for our world events update on Wednesday morning. We've kind of been locked into those Wednesdays now for a few weeks, and it does vary depending on my schedule, but this week uh, should be back on again Wednesday morning, and we will uh, post that. Uh, but uh, yeah, glad to have you guys. Uh, thanks for inviting me uh, into your uh, into your home there, although here I am sitting out in the tall pines in my little studio beneath the stars, looking out my window. It's a beautiful day here in the mountains of Colorado. In fact, uh, to get from my office to my house, which is on our property, I have to walk outside, and it's uh, it's always beautiful. In fact, today I lingered uh, a little bit longer and walked around a little bit out there, and I was reminded that uh, I had not checked my game camera in in over a month and so i thought oh yeah i need i've been so busy it just escaped my mind so i walked over to that part of the property got my you know the card out uh the sim card or digital card and then checked it and lo and behold we caught two young uh mountain lions on the um oh. 
uh, the uh, camera overnight. And that was uh, about a week ago, I think the date stamp was. Uh, and I know it was two of them because they were coming from the same direction about a minute apart, a little bit less than a minute apart. So there was no way the first one could have gotten back around and gotten on the camera again. I didn't see the mama, but, and these were youths. I mean, they weren't tiny. They were, they were, they could do some damage too, but they weren't uh, big cats like we've seen before. But uh, anyway, um, glad to have you guys with with us, and uh, thanks for letting me uh, take the time just to introduce uh, the podcast and tell you a little bit about what's going on at Not By Works. But I'll throw it to you now, Teresa, and you guys uh, fire away. Okay, so I'm guessing that you didn't get my email then about tonight that I sent after the text. So I did, I did, uh, and but you know I, I took that to be some backup questions uh, if right. if needed. Uh, but yeah, I've got that here. So as far as I'm concerned, you guys can just direct your questions to JB. I don't I don't have to be a moderator so much. Mike, you look like you might have a question. <laughs> okay, I'll start out. I do have a question. Maybe turn your mic up. Well, I thought you... I had it at 100%. Maybe I'll get closer. Okay. Yeah, and and on y'all's end, if you can, if you need to turn up your speakers where the volume's coming through louder to you, that doesn't affect our recording. But I think okay. everyone's recording mic should be where we need it already. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, I wrote this out, and it got a little wordy, so I'll I'll be aware of that. So in chapters two and three of Revelation, there's the admonishment given to seven real churches that were in Asia Minor. There at the when John was writing the book of Revelation. And when I was in Bible school in the 80s, I don't remember it being taught, maybe it was, but I just don't remember it being taught that this was a progression of the church through the ages. You know, each one represented a different time. Um, that view, as far as my recollection is, came later in the ensuing decades, as you know, you hear different people talking about Revelation and the the churches there. Um, so Scott, Bible scholars and teachers would make this claim, and it was like, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. I don't read that in scripture, but okay, if they say that's what it is, then I guess that's what it is. But my question is, since scripture doesn't say that that's what these churches represent, is that a valid claim to make by people, or is that just kind of an agreed view of that passage yeah so that's a great question mike uh, so what mike's referring to is called the panoramic view of church history interpretation of revelation 2 and 3 and it actually is quite uh, old uh, i know for example one of my professors at dallas seminary over 30 years ago uh, j dwight pentecost who was already old when i had him uh, and his book has been around since i think the 50s uh um the coming uh, what is it called uh Thy kingdom come or something like that. I can't believe I forgot the name of it. It's probably behind me on camera somewhere. But anyway, uh, it's his classic eschatology textbook, Things to Come. That's what it's called, Things to Come. And uh, my book, What Lies Ahead, which I co-authored with Mark Fontecchio a few years ago, uh, we kind of sought to really take the same approach as uh, Pentecost did in his classic book, uh, but make it a little more up-to-date in terms of terminology and a little more user-friendly, although it is an academic book with uh, charts and graphs and scripture index and so forth. But we kind of followed the same pattern. They're basically taking the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 
and starting there as a launching point for understanding God's plan of the ages. But in any event, in his book, Things to Come, he takes that view. I disagree with him on that. Uh, one of the few things I disagree with uh, Dr. Pentecost on, he's with the Lord now, of course, he died a few years ago. But it's not uncommon for dispensationalists to take that view. Uh, I, like you, though, Mike, don't really see it in Scripture. It's an example, in my mind, of, of allegorical interpretation. And even though it's intriguing, uh, it, it really poses some hermeneutical problems. So for those who may not be familiar with the view, uh, in, in the, the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus is sending uh, seven letters, one each, to seven historical churches there in the late first century, in which he provides you know, commendation and correction and so forth. Uh, and uh, scholars have pointed out the correlation between the particular problems in each church and, broadly speaking, the characterization, if you will, of the church over the last 2,000 years. Um, and so that's called the panoramic view of church history. Uh, and according to that view, we are living in the what often is called the Laodicean age today, uh, the, you know, the, the Laodicean church, or the kind of the lukewarm uh, apostate, that kind of a thing. And so there are some intriguing I think, observations that you can make, but there's nothing within the pages of Scripture itself that justifies that as a, an interpretation. Um, and when you start bringing your interpretations to the text, such as that, then, you know, you really open the door wide open to all sorts of allegory. And, and really, that's what we as, as dispensationalists have, have sought to guard against, frankly, even though we've been some of the biggest you know, offenders of that principle. Uh, you know, Ryrie talked about the importance of consistent, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, uh, and yet dispensationalists over the last uh, 120 years have have had some pretty notorious examples of allegorical interpretation. Uh, just think about guys like F.W. Grant uh, around the turn of the 20th century with his numeric Bible. Uh, Gabe Aline had some some pretty noteworthy allegorization, and I think this falls under that category. But I wouldn't, you know, fight over it. I mean, there's some good people that make that, uh, try to make that, you know, point. But uh, again, the scripture does not explicitly state that that would be a more of an application than it would an, an interpretation. Yeah, and I went to a dispensational Bible school. That's where I learned about that. And what, but we weren't taught that. From what I remember, we weren't taught that with those two chapters. I have a follow-up question to that. Is there anything, any place else in Scripture that has the kind of conjecture made, you know, on on this big of a scale? That you can off the top of your head. Well, I mean, there are other common um, allegorizations like that. Like, for example, you often see uh, in in the Old Testament historical narratives, uh, people and accounts and historical accounts allegorized as references to Christ. For example, Joseph, people will say, oh, Joseph's a type of Christ, right? Because, you know, he, there are some similarities there, but the Bible never says that. And so I hold to a strict view of typology. Uh, typology is biblical. It's a Greek word, tupos, in the New Testament. But I believe that unless the New Testament explicitly designates something from the Old Testament as a type, uh, we have to really be cautious about, you know, drawing those uh, inferences um, it, it really poses some 
interesting uh, issues when it comes to Bible prophecy, because it's not strictly speaking the same thing in terms of allegory and typology, but often people will take passages such as uh, the dry bones uh, prophecy in Ezekiel 37 and suggest that when Israel was reconstituted as a nation in 1948 after World War II, that that was the beginning of the dry bones coming together. But again, um, as a dispensationalist, I believe the next great prophetic event uh, to which the world looks forward is the rapture. And I believe that not because I'm a dispensationalist. I believe that because I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And I believe that dispensationalism, which is a biblical term, dispensation, uh, has the best approach to handling Scripture from a literal grammatical historical viewpoint. And so if you do that, I, I think there's really no prophecy that we can point to as being fulfilled prior to the rapture. So I think, you know, it, it, we can look at some of those things and and say they might have prophetic implications or prophetic significance, but whether that's the fulfillment of that, I would hesitate to, to go that far. And to me, I see that same thing with what we're talking about with Revelation. It's, you know, it's an interesting application, yes. but is that the meaning of the text? I, I don't think so. Well, those are great examples, Joseph and the dry bones. Thank you. Yeah. The dry bones was one of my questions as we talked to two people that I thought might be on tonight. Um, there's, I've heard people talk of the physical return of the Jews to Israel and the spiritual return. Mm. And I wondered, you know, is the dry bones then their spiritual return? later in the tribulation or does that not apply at all so i don't make that distinction uh, i think i know where they might be going with that but you know the scripture is very clear that there is going to be a, a a return of the people of israel to the land in belief and almost every old testament uh book really talks about that both the the pentateuch and uh the prophets um you know, I've got several examples of that in my book, What Lies Ahead. But, you know, in the New Testament, in, in the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus says in Matthew 24 that, uh, you know, when he comes back, he will send his angels with a great son of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven uh, to the other. I mean, that's that's the fulfillment of, to me, the uh, the dry bones prophecy. And if you look at you know, um, Ezekiel in a historic, in, in a, in an outline, obviously 37 comes before, you know, 40 and, and 40 to 48 is the kingdom and the millennium of the millennial temple and so forth. And so they, they get reconstituted and come alive again as a nation prior to getting into the land. But they have to do that in belief, because as Paul uh, explains in Romans chapter 10, they cannot, well, let me back up. The At the time that they are regathered, according to Joel and according to uh, Jesus in Matthew 23 and other passages, the nation of Israel will call on the name of the Lord. Remember in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus was rebuking the first century Jewish leaders, and he says, you will not see me again until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a, a fulfillment of, uh, or that's the reference to the Messianic Psalm 118, that Messianic Psalm. And so 
there was a splattering of believers who cried Hosanna, Hosanna on the day of the triumphal entry. But, you know, as a nation, the cries were crucify him, crucify him. The leaders rejected him. And so Jesus says, you know, in, in that same context there in Matthew during the final week of his life, as he's, you know, uh, cursing the fig tree and and the, the whole temple controversy there, he says, uh, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, first century Jewish leaders, and give it to a nation worthy of it. Well, what makes them worthy of it is their faith. They have believed in him and not rejected him. Uh, Abraham, of course, believed and was justified, and that's what all Jews have to do before they can be saved. So Jesus says, you know, you've got to call on me in order to be delivered into the kingdom. So now go back to Paul in Romans 10, and Paul explains very plainly that they cannot call on him in whom they have not believed. That in order for Israel to be delivered into their kingdom, when the deliverer comes out of Zion, Romans 11, 25, and 26, they must first believe in him. And so the Jews today, in my mind, that cannot be the fulfillment of the the, re, the, the return prophecy because they're not there in belief. Um, not to say that some Jews haven't believed. Many do. They're Messianic Jews all around. But as a nation, they're not characterized by faith. They're unbelievers. And so I, oh, the best I would say from, you know, from a prophecy standpoint about the current state of Israel is that it is a setting of the stage for the fulfillment of prophecy. Obviously, Israel has to be a nation in order for the nation of Israel to believe in Jesus as their Savior and then be gathered together and, and you know, put back supernaturally in the land. So when Israel became a nation, certainly that got our attention as it should have. But I think a lot of Bible prophecy teachers, even, you know, especially in some cases, dispensationalists, just really misunderstood in my mind the whole Olivet Discourse. They they thought that the fig tree illustration that Jesus used, not the not the one earlier when he cursed the fig tree, but I'm talking about in the Olivet Discourse, the analogy, um, they understood that as a prophecy, which it was not a prophecy. It's just an illustration. He says, when you see all these signs that I'm explaining to you, you'll know my coming is near in the same way that when you see a fig tree begin to sprout, you know, you know that summer is near. It's just an analogy. But, you know, some scholars completely misunderstood that and said, oh, this is the fig tree is sprouting. And within a generation, Christ is going to come back. And, you know, you're familiar with all of that. So, um, so no, I don't, I don't see a distinction between a spiritual return and a physical return other than to say the two must go together and in order for them to physically return in fulfillment of prophecy they must first you know believe in Jesus and and then they can call him. how can they call on him in whom they have not believed paul said very good yeah that helps which if i can add an addendum to that you know that also, I think, helps clarify one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture, which is that uh, Romans, uh, I'm going to call it up here, Romans uh, 10, 9, and 10, you know, especially for those who understand the clarity of the gospel, that it is simply by faith alone, no, no works involved, which is, of course, what we're all about it, not by works. Uh, but people have struggled to try to make sense of Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so a lot of grace guys like myself who haven't really connected the dots, I think, 
you know, properly in that whole context, will say, oh, well, confession and believe are just synonyms there, you know. No, no, it's not. They're not, he's not talking about, uh, you know, eternal salvation there. He's talking about deliverance into the kingdom, that in order for Israel to be delivered nationally, remember, saved just means delivered. In fact, more often than not, 58% of the time that, that verb sozo is used in the New Testament, it has nothing to do with eternal life, heaven or hell. It's talking about physical deliverance. And that's the case here. We know that because he quotes uh, from Isaiah later on in which he says the deliverer is going to come out of Zion and then all Israel will be saved. Same word, sozo. So he's not talking here about in this immediate verse, eternal salvation, he's talking about national deliverance. And he's basically saying that, verse 10, with the heart one believes an individual, believes unto righteousness. So yeah, personal individual justification and eternal salvation comes by faith. But he says, with the mouth, confession is made unto deliverance into the kingdom. And so the key to understanding Romans 10 is to keep that distinction between national salvation and individual justification, and individual justification by faith must always precede national deliverance into the kingdom. That was a mouthful. Yeah, well, hopefully it wasn't too uh, complex there. I didn't want to get too much into the weeds, but uh, I did a two-part video series on that called... Uh, uh, Accounted as righteousness, and it's a best, essentially an exposition of Romans uh, uh, nine and ten. So, could you repeat that last statement? National. Yeah. So Paul's point in Romans ten because he starts out by saying, "My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, the nation of Israel, is that right. they may be saved." He's not talking about individual justification. Okay. He's talking about national deliverance. So. <laughs> Individual justification must precede national salvation or deliverance. And, yeah. and then I think it's pretty clear as you if you take that approach and then you begin to read on, he says, How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? He quotes in Romans 10 13, which again is not an individual salvation verse. I grew up probably like some of you using that as part of the Romans road, but Paul's quoting Joel 2:32 there, and he says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that, that's nobody gets saved by calling on the name of the Lord eternally. I mean, how many people in their dying breath who are unbelievers and even skeptics and pagans have cried out, oh, my God, just before they, you know, crash into a building or something? You know, that doesn't get you to heaven just calling on the name of God. But if you go back and look at Joel 2.32, which Paul is quoting there, he's talking about national deliverance into the long-awaited kingdom. And he's saying, you can't do that, Israel, until you call Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, uh, you know, anytime the New Testament quotes an Old Testament verse, you should go back and look at the context. It really will help you know, clarify. Uh, so then he goes on to say, how can they, the nation of Israel, call on him in whom they have not first believed? It doesn't say first, but that's the implication. Uh, and then he goes on, of course, to how can they believe in him and him in whom they have not heard? Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So it's both individual righteousness and national deliverance are talked about in this passage in a Jewish context in the nation of Israel. Because remember, chapters 9 to 11 of Romans are all about Israel. Paul is answering the question, what about Israel? So he can't answer the question about national Israel without first talking about 
the gospel and the only means of justification. Speaking of national uh, deliverance and one world happening to the United States, we used to be a Christian nation. Seems like we're not anymore, or we're, we're getting further away from it every day. Absolutely. Yeah, we certainly are. And in, in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, I have a whole chapter on the rise of Christian persecution, as well as in uh, chapter, I think it's, I can't remember the chapter, but toward the end of Volume 2, the one world religion and how America is has lost its you know, spiritual and Christian moorings. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I have a question. Um, I have a friend that I'm trying to talk to about um, Paul's gospel versus uh, Christ's gospel. She seems, she says that they're not the same gospel. Hmm. And I don't, I can't understand why she thinks that way. But she gave me Romans 16, that now to him that is of a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. That was Romans 16, 25. And then Peter writes, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, Acts 3.32. She says, see the difference? Yeah. So, so um, is the that term, like dispensation or something? It sounds like they could be a uh, hyper-dispensationalist uh, or, a, you know, a, a, a Pauline dispensationalist. Yeah. Um, but the term gospel, of course, uh, like every word in any language for that matter, has to be understood in its context. It's not a technical term to refer to that which must be believed in order to have eternal life. It can be used that way. And I make this point in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. I have a whole chapter that shows examples of uh, you know, places where the term gospel is used to refer to the content of saving faith. For example, uh, uh, Paul talks about uh, you've not all obeyed the gospel, you know, that's uh -huh. a, that's a, that means you've not all believed it. And there's other passages, um, you know, so, uh, you know, depending on the context, the term gospel, obviously, lexically, it just means good news, but it can mean the good news about salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. So Paul, when he says my gospel in Romans 16, he's not meaning the one that he created or that he owns, or it's not possessive there. He's just saying the one that he's proclaiming. And obviously Romans is bookended by his, you know, references to the gospel. Chapter one, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And then chapter 16, he talks about how he can't wait to get to Rome. Cause remember he had not been to Rome at the time right. he wrote the letter. He can't wait to get there to preach the gospel to those who've never heard it before. So I think on balance, if you look at the, the whole context of the book of Romans, gospel, you know, is not trying to distinguish some something between Paul and something else. Okay. I didn't think that different. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me, but yeah. I don't know why she sees it that way. So I've been trying to figure it out. <laughs> now, you know, we do have to clarify that while salvation in any age is always 
by grace through faith, mm -hmm. a con the specific content over time in the progress of revelation that must be believed obviously changed. You know, God's not going to hold people accountable to believe something that he hasn't revealed yet, right? Yeah. And so Abraham was saved by faith. Uh, we're saved by faith, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the actual content, you know, has evolved as God shared more and more of it. Today in the New Testament, and this is really the whole premise of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, which is setting out to show biblically what precisely someone has to believe about Jesus today to be saved eternally. Okay. Uh, okay. You know, today you have to believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay our personal penalty for sins. And, um, you know, in the Old Testament, they understood that only God could provide redemption, that he would provide a Redeemer. They may not have known the details. They may not have known, uh, you know, the uh, about the cross or that his name would be Jesus or, you know, that type of thing. But they certainly understood going all the way back to the garden, really, that it would require a blood sacrifice and that God would be the one that pro would provide it. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. So, the, the dispensationalists, as we understand the flow of thought in Scripture, do not teach that you know there were different methods of salvation from age to age. It's always by faith. But mm -hmm. today, you must believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins. If you don't know Jesus, you can't be saved. If you've never heard of Jesus, you cannot be saved. If you do not believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again, uh, you cannot be saved. If you do not know you're a sinner who needs a Savior, you cannot be saved. So the Bible in the New Testament gives us very clear instruction on precisely what we have to believe to be saved. Well, maybe that's it, because she said you can't just believe. You have to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So maybe that's what she's trying to convey. I mean, maybe, but, and again, even believing in the death and resurrection isn't in and of itself the uh, you know the irreducible minimum of what you have to believe because that's a historical fact and many people who aren't saved believe that he died and rose again, but oh. it's when you believe that he died and rose again for you. It's that substitutionary atonement aspect mm -hmm. that I J B Hickson am a sinner who will spend eternity in hell if I don't place my faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So it's not believing the historical fact about. Mm -hmm. Jesus, it's believing that he died and rose again for you personally. Okay. So, uh, so that's, uh, you know, it's still faith. It's not, you know, Calvinists, of course, teach that it's the kind of faith that saves you, that you have to have a, a certain kind of faith. You have to really, 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 really believe and, and promise to be good and pledge allegiance and turn from all your sins and make a commitment and surrender your life. And all of that, they, they wrap up into the one word faith. They, they call it the, uh, the fiducia is the Latin term as a component of faith. So that's why we often talk past each other when we're dialoguing with Calvinists, because Calvinists will say, it's faith alone that saves you. And we go, amen. And then we go, it's faith alone that saves you, and they go, amen, but we're talking about two completely different things because they define faith differently to include all kinds of components. Therefore, if someone is not living a godly Christian life, they can hastily conclude, well, they didn't have the right kind of faith. That faith wasn't real. It was spurious. So I always make a big 
point to to uh, to point out that it's not the kind of faith that saves you, contrary to what Calvinists might try to say. It's the object, and faith is faith. You know, faith doesn't have different kinds. You, there's only one kind of faith. Lexically, pistuo in Greek is the the verb, and pistis is the noun. It means to uh, be confident or certain of something, and so. You know, you can have faith in something that's not going to save you. You know, a Muslim's faith in the five pillars of the Islamic religion is faith. It's not that they have the wrong kind of faith. They just have the wrong object. They're believing in something that won't get them to heaven. Uh, as I've often said, a child's belief in Santa Claus is just as much faith as my belief in the gospel. One will get you to heaven. One won't. So it's not right. the kind of faith that saves you. It's the object of faith. Very, very important. Okay, thank you. I think you kind of answered my question there, but mine is kind of piggybacked off, off of hers um, because, I, yeah, I was really kind of messed up by the whole Calvinistic um, theology. Uh, and so my question was, can I put to rest the worry for my loved ones who are in the um, LGBTQ community? Um, that they are saved. I know they love the Lord. They believe those things you just said, the fundamentals, Jesus is their savior that, you know, uh, they can't get to, to heaven by, you know, anything else but him. However, they live in a willingly in a sinful lifestyle, which, you know, I used to listen to a lot of Calvinistic pastors who say, you know, um, well, if they're living actively living in sin, are they even really saved? Because the Holy Spirit would draw us to um, a place of repentance. And I think their, their word repentance too is different because it's repentance to turn away from the sin rather than repentance metanoia, like you have discussed in um, what the gospel is not. So I guess my question, I, I just want, because I, I, I constantly worry about my loved ones who are in this you know, community participating in this. And I just, are they going to go in the rapture? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's a very common question. And, uh, and, and so, and it's actually a fairly straightforward answer. Um, the question of whether someone will go to heaven, either at the rapture or if they die, has absolutely nothing to do with their behavior. Mm-hmm. That's, that's that the Bible could not be more clear on that. Titus 3 5, not by works of righteousness which we do, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Galatians or Ephesians 2 8 9, for by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. On and on and on. Romans 4, Romans 11. So when we start speculating on whether someone is a believer or not, first of all, the only person that knows with 100% certainty whether they're a believer or not is that person. You, you know whether you've believed. It's, it's not possible to not know that, actually, unless you're, you know, have some kind of a brain injury or obviously if you have a mental illness where you, your brain's not functioning. Uh, but barring that, you know what you believe or not. And so it's a very simple question. Have you believed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin? And he's the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life. So that's the only standard. So when you get to talking about people who are living in, uh, you know, just abject immorality uh, and yet claim to be Christians, um, 
you know, is it possible that they're a Christian? Absolutely, because there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he's catering to the flesh. And, you know, Calvinists love to make this distinction between willfully living in sin, and that comes from a complete misunderstanding and, frankly, some bad English translations of 1 John chapter 3. But the fact of the matter is all sin is willful. Nobody sins involuntarily. <laughs> I mean, doesn't matter what the sin is. You can't go, oh, I sinned, and I, I didn't even know I did it. <laughs> no, you sin willfully. That's what makes it sin. You either sin by omission or commission, but you you sin when you, when you willfully choose to disobey a holy God. And so my so-called little sins are just as much an offense to a holy God as the so-called big sins, right? And so we love to go to this, you know, extreme of, oh, what about this practicing homosexual? Well, look, there's an incipient pride in even going down that road. And Calvinists, uh, they don't admit this, but it seems quite evident to me that for them to look at a, a person who is, you know, engaging in in sexual sin of some kind of lifestyle of sexual sin, and by the way, it's not just homosexual sin, it's heterosexual sin too in that sense, mm -hmm. But for them to look at a person who's engaging in that lifestyle and summarily dismiss any possibility that they're a Christian, while at the same time knowing full well in their own heart that they are still struggling with sins today, that they've struggled with their entire Christian life. It might be pride. It might be lust. It might be anger. It might be covetousness. Uh, you know, Galatians lists a whole slew of you know, manifestations of the fleshly nature. And when we cater to that flesh, we're going to produce sinful behavior. When we cater to the spirit, we're going to produce, you know, the fruit of the spirit. So uh, it's kind of prideful to wag your finger at someone and say, well, there's no way they could be a Christian, and yet somehow be confident that your sins haven't crossed a line to where, you know, you're disqualified. So, you know, uh, you know, the, the issue isn't the willfulness of the sin. The issue isn't the prolonged nature of the sin, because we all, I mean, everyone, I've been a Christian for, since I was six years old. Uh, it's almost 50 years now. And, uh, you know, there are sins that I struggle with, you know, you know, those besetting sins uh, that, you know, you struggle with your whole life and you yield to the Holy Spirit and you hopefully, you know, are growing spiritually and bringing all thoughts into captivity and that kind of thing. But every believer, if they're intellectually honest, knows that they've not, you know, conquered sin. As long as we're topside this earth in our, in our mortal bodies, we're going to be dealing with sin. So we've got to be very careful, uh, Brooke, about suggesting that someone's behavior can in, can, can either invalidate their faith or validate it or disqualify them, and, or certainly, you know, that you can't lose your salvation. Nothing we can do can cause God to go back on his unconditional promise. So, um, so I, I think, uh, you know, homosexuality is one of those things that, you know, if someone like your loved ones that you're talking about, all we can say theologically is if there's been a time in their life when they personally trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, and only they know that, uh, then, uh, you know, they're saved. And their behavior, as abhorrent as it is, and it comes with grave consequences, by the way. You know, we, we have several videos out there that talk about 
the consequences of sin or the awfulness of sin. One of the, that's one of the titles that comes to my mind. Um, in my book, Freely by His Grace, we have a whole chapter on sin and the believer. And uh, frankly, I, I believe dispensational grace guys uh, like myself uh, do a better job of handling the issue of sin in the life of a Christian than Calvinists do, because Calvinists, all they come down to is, well, they're not a Christian. <laughs> they wouldn't do that if they were a Christian. No Christian would do that. So they just got these people getting saved over and over again, because not because they lost it, as an Arminian would say, but Calvinists say, oh, you just never had it. you know. Yeah. And so they, they don't really deal with the crux of the matter, which is our identity in Christ, how we should live out our positional righteousness uh, with practical righteousness by yielding to the Holy Spirit. And uh, and so we deal with it. We deal with it extensively. There's, like I said, that book, Freely by His Grace, is a comprehensive, you know, understanding of the grace message. Um, but, you know, you, you can you can ask them their testimony. You can say, hey, tell me, you know, how you know the Lord. And if their testimony articulates that they get grace, they understand it, they believe the gospel— then you can reasonably conclude they're saved unless they're lying. Um, but again, because people lie, you know, uh, and and we don't, we can't climb into someone's mind and know for certain. The only person that can know with one hundred percent certainty whether they're saved is you. And I know I'm saved. You know, as Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I don't have any doubt about it. I can't lose it. I can't give it up. I can't invalidate it. Uh, you know, uh, sadly, Christianity is filled with uh, stories of people who've abandoned the faith. Uh, John the Baptist himself died in a lonely prison cell wondering whether Jesus is really the Son of God. He died in a state of skepticism, unbelief, which is just another term for skepticism. Um, other, we have other examples. If Peter had been struck by lightning after he denied Christ three times and even cursed him, I'm sure many Calvinists of his day would have said, oh, he wasn't a Christian. He died in unbelief. You know, he didn't persevere to the end, right? Yeah. But thankfully, our eternal destiny is not, is not contingent upon us, you know, hanging on till the end of our last breath. It's based on the moment you believe you're, you know, in Christ. At that punctiliar moment in time, Jesus says, "You passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment." And I believe He meant it. That's an excellent answer. Thank you. That gives me great comfort. Yeah. You won't lose your salvation, but you'll lose your relationship with God, with the Lord. Yeah, I, I prefer the term fellowship rather than relationship. Relationship to me is positional. So my family, I, I'm always going to have a relationship with them in terms of my DNA, but I may not always be in fellowship with them, right? Same thing is true spiritually. Uh, our relationship with the Lord is set the moment we trust in Him and we pass from death to life. We become a child of God instead of a child of wrath. But our fellowship uh, wanes. That's what First John's all about. And, you know, you want to have that intimate closeness to the Lord by walking by faith and not by sight. Yes. So I have a question. I'm not sure if you, if I heard you say it or somebody else, but how do people get saved in the millennium? There's no sacrifice system. Is it the same gospel, they still believe that Jesus died, was buried, rose again for their sin? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. Back to what we mentioned earlier, that in the progress of Revelation, the specific details of the content of what must be believed to be saved change. And first of all, in the millennium, uh, at first, everyone on earth will be a believer, because either it's Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David coming back in their glorified bodies and, and participating in the kingdom, or the church, the bride of Christ, coming back uh, at you know the second coming and ruling and reigning with Christ in our glorified bodies, or it's people in their physical bodies still, believers who survived the tribulation and uh, are still alive, and Jesus says to them when he comes back, uh, come ye blessed of my kingdom and blessed of my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you, the sheep in, in Matthew 25. So you've got uh, all only believers at the start of the millennium, either in their physical bodies or their glorified bodies. Those believers in their physical bodies obviously will uh, repopulate the earth through procreation and their offspring, their children, like all human beings, are born dead in their trespasses and sin. And uh, at some point, they will have to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the content will be the same in the sense that it's only Jesus who can save you, but it'll be a little different in the sense that he's there. He's right there living among us. And so the evangelistic enterprise during the millennium, once we start to have a population of unbelievers who need Christ, will be different than you know it is today, where today we point people back to the cross to a historical figure and say, you've got to trust this man, the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In the millennium, we'll point to Jesus, the King of the world, sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And we'll say, see that man over there, the one that gave the State of the World address on you know Fox News last January? If you'll trust in him, he's the only one that can save you. And uh, so I think in the sense of the object, it's still God and specifically Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, but it's not going to be, uh, you know, trusting, um, you know, looking back. So in the Old Testament, faith looked forward to the promise of a Redeemer. Today, it looks back to the person of Christ as the Redeemer. In the millennium, it will look at Christ, the one who can save you. So there will be evangelistic efforts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and not everyone will be saved. By the end of the thousand years, there's a whole contingent of unbelievers who, even under the most idyllic of circumstances, when Satan's in prison and there's no accidental death, there's no inequities, it's a time of perfect peace and justice, the heart of man is desperately wicked and people will still unbelievably reject the free gift of salvation. Is that um, where Revelation twenty two fifteen comes in by chance? Like after the millennial, millennial reign, um, I think outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Yeah, it's just a descriptive phrase there. So we have to always be careful when interpreting scripture to distinguish between prescription and description. And there are a lot of you know descriptive phrases that speak in terms like this, where you're talking about the unrighteous positionally, those who've never been justified by faith, which is the, the only thing that will keep you out of heaven. Uh, 
and they're described in terms of their behavior, but we need to recognize it's not their sexual immorality or their murdering or their idolatry and all that that is the cause of them being kept out. But yeah, Revelation 21 and 22 kind of juxt goes back and forth, oscillates between you know eternal state truth and millennium truth. After the millennium, it's there is no you know time anymore. It's it's there's no night. There's there's uh oh. it's just the new new heavens and the new earth and in eternity. Oh. Great questions. During, during that time when Satan is locked up, then I can't remember where are the demons then uh, during that time because they're not on earth. And, uh, they're they're locked up somewhere too, aren't they? Also, yeah. So, uh, I just can't bring to my mind where they're at. Yeah. So they're also uh, locked up. The ones that are permanently locked up, of course, never got out. The ones in Tartarus. Um, but just because they're locked up doesn't mean there's not still, you know, influence. It's kind of like the mob boss who can still yield quite a bit of influence even from prison. So Satan will be severely, and his army will be severely limited, but there will still be, you know, evil on earth. It'll just be held in check. And in the spiritual realm, there's still going to be evil. You know, uh, the battle is not over yet. It's almost over, but it's not completely over. How would they do that? Like through, I don't know, how could they transmit evil? <laughs> like through mind games or... Um... How would that happen? Well, the same way they do today. Remember, I'm looking for Revelation 20. Uh, after the thousand years, you know, that's when uh, the devil that deceived them is cast into the lake of fire. Uh, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Um, you know, Satan himself is cast in the lake of fire. So until then, there's still going to be spirit, you know, e evil in the unseen realm, in the spiritual realm. Um, so, uh, you know, they do it today through deception. Again, it'll be much harder than, you know, the, the contrast between the tribulation and the millennium is striking because in the tribulation, it's the most, you know, severe deception of all time, unprecedented deception. In the millennium, deception is going to be far less likely, um, but people can still be, you know, deceived. But but the reason it'll be less likely is that there will not be uh, injustice. There'll not be uh, innocent people being convicted of crimes they didn't commit, uh, guilty people getting off, uh, you know, scot-free. Uh, because Christ is ruling with a rod of iron on the throne, there will be accountability. And so it's it's much harder to deceive people in an environment like that. Yet self-deception, as James talks about, is the worst kind of deception, and people will deceive themselves, you know, uh, and that's what will happen, I think, during the millennium with those who reject the gospel. Will they have to be much more willing participants in evil because it will be harder to influence them? Um, or is that just, again? No, I mean, I, I think that's probably true. I'm just trying to think through the implications of that because I don't want to make it sound like today people who willingly participate yeah. have some have somewhat of an excuse. You know, I don't mean to make it sound like that. 
uh, everybody, you know, has accountability for the choices they make. But yeah, it does seem like uh, it would be, you'd have to really be looking for it, almost looking for it. It's going to be harder to get, you know, people to join the dark side, so to speak. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So that was one of my questions about evil spirits. When you said demons are evil spirits, but not all evil spirits are demons. Is that what you said? Yes. So I'm, 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 I'm really having a lot of fun lately and, and in preparation for my <laughs> next book that I'm working on, uh, you know, kind of trying to really fine tune my understanding of, of angelology and demonology. And so what I'm trying, what I was talking about in my current series on Tuesday nights, where we are with that series, is that the Nephilim, I classify as an evil spirit, okay? They're not, you know, fallen angels. They're not human, but they're evil spirits. Uh, in the books, the first two volumes of Spirit of the Antichrist, um, I, in the opening chapter of volume one, I outline the fact that I believe fallen angels are demons. I think there's room for disagreement there on the terminology. Uh, but at the end of the day, we all agree that Satan has a spiritual non-human army at his disposal. And it consists of purely, you know, angelic, for lack of a better term, spiritual beings, fallen, you know, angelic, bad, the bad guys, as I talk about in the book. But it also consists of this special category of hybrids that are the offspring of the unholy alliance between the fallen angels and human women in Genesis chapter 6 that Jude talks about and Peter talks about. And whether or not you believe that that type of angelic intrusion is still happening today, and that's what I'm, I'm still kind of, you know, I've got both my feet planted in midair as, as I kind of work my way through this. And I reserve the right to, you know, study it until I really come to resolution biblically. But I have, I have a lot of good friends and scholars who teach and believe that that it that it could be happening today. And, and, and by that, I mean, just to clarify for our listeners, obviously, as I talked about recently on Tuesday nights, Genesis 6, it's pretty clear, indisputable that some fallen angels uh, left their proper domain, put on human flesh like they can do, shape-shifting, uh, had sex with human women, and, and resulted in a you know race of hybrid beings, non-human. They don't, they can't be redeemed. They're not human beings in the image of God, who are called Nephilim. So that that happened historically. That's not you know in dispute. Although there are some Bible commentators who still have trouble with that, so they try to make up some bizarre ways to interpret that passage that just don't seem to fit. But if we assume, as I do and many do, that the Bible means what it says, that happened historically. The question is, is it still happening today? And that's where scholars disagree. The Bible is simply silent on that. We don't know. Now, my good friend uh, Andy Woods, uh, who you know, I just love to death, and he's one of my go-to guys just to make sure I'm not like off the radar here off the reservation and some of my viewpoints uh, respect him immensely. You know, he insists that there's no way these fallen angels would do that again because they saw what happened to the first group. They got severely disciplined and put into Tartarus, you know, where they're permanently confined until the lake of fire. Well, that's, that's an interesting speculation, but there's no chapter and verse that says that. So he may be right. 
He makes a good point, but I can't land there dogmatically because the Bible is simply silent. So is it possible as we near uh, the return of Christ and the spiritual battle is ramping up in the cosmic realm between Satan and God that Satan could send some of his legion of fallen angels to come once again and and try to do that uh, and to help gain an army uh, spiritually on the dark side? It's To me, it's possible. It's certainly theologically possible in my mind. I can't think of a theological reason that would prevent that from being possible, but I'm not going to say dogmatically that is happening or that it couldn't happen. Um, As you know, when you correlate the theology with what we see around us, which is really what I've tried to do in these two books, the most recent books, and, and that I've, you know, spent 15 years working on is I'm basically saying, how can I make sense of all the craziness that's happening without compromising and violating my biblical dispensational understanding of scripture? And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. We so are prone to take experience and elevate it to a level of, you know, authority, and we can't do that. So, but as I've tried to do that, I see a lot of anecdotal experiential evidence around us right now that indicates there could be more of these intrusions. And I don't want to say dogmatically that's what it is, because that would be basing my view on experience. But given that the Bible doesn't preclude that possibility, at least that I've found explicitly, it makes sense that that could be what's happening. So back to your question, to me, I'm trying to distinguish there between demons, which I still lean toward them being fallen angels, a synonym, versus Nephilim, which are not demons. They are the offspring of demons, in my mind. Um, and they're both evil spirits, but they're not the same thing, if that makes sense. Now, now one follow-up to that is, again, as I've really been researching this and dialoguing with people that I really respect, at the end of the day, we all understand Satan has an evil army of non-humans. He has a human evil army as well, you know, the Klaus Schwabs and Yuval Noah Hararis of the world, uh, the, the, the human accomplices, as I call them in my book. Um, but he has an unseen army, you know, that can take on human form and all of that, the spiritual side. In that realm, in that category, different scholars use different labels. And I'll try to make this as clear as I can without, you know, using PowerPoint, which is kind of my crutch sometimes to diagram things out. But for some, fallen angels are one part, one class of evil spirit. They cohabited with human women and created the Nephilim, as we talked about. And according to this view, the Nephilim are demons. So you've got fallen angels or Nephilim slash demons, which are synonyms. For others, and this is the view that I took in the books, fallen angels is just another name for demon. So fallen angels slash demons is one type of evil spirit. The Nephilim are another. So both understand there are sort of two categories of evil spirit. We just don't agree necessarily on the terminology. And I'm okay with that. You know, for now, I'm still kind of working through it. Um, but uh, either way, we all end up at the same place is the idea. So where do UFOs and abductions fit into this? And yeah. the resulting beings? Absolutely. So uh, I... In my book, in chapter nine, I deal with volume two of Spirit of the Antichrist, 
and I imagine by now most of our listeners know they can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, spiritoftheantichrist.org to learn more about that. But we're picking up new listeners all the time. It's unbelievable. Our you know, metrics chart is like a hockey stick. It's just, you know, going up, which I praise God for, because they're always hearing the gospel, you know. But um in in volume two, chapters nine and ten, I deal with that very subject, UFOs and abductions. Um, I believe it's all spiritual, demonic, uh, you know, dimensional. Uh, these are not uh, uh, beings from another planet or another galaxy or another universe. These are interdimensional beings from Satan's realm, from the heavenlies, if you will. And they can, as I've documented, both scripturally and anecdotally, take on human form. They can take on animal form. And uh, tomorrow night at Prophecy Night, I'm going to get into some more paranormal type activity that I believe can only be explained, you know, at least biblically, uh, as demonic activity. And that involves inanimate objects. So while demons cannot indwell, if you will, an inanimate object like a chair or a table or a lamp, they can certainly, in the unseen realm, influence that. And that's where you get into poltergeist and some of those types of things. Now, unfortunately, scholars and researchers that don't have a biblical worldview and may not even be Christians, you know, they have all sorts of, you know, explanations for that, you know, ghosts and people coming back to, you know, life. I, I talked to a lady uh, Sunday after our second service at uh, Plum Creek, and, you know, she was asking about that, you know, very thing. And I said, look, if you understand your biblical anthropology, the doctrine of man, humanity, you know that a person cannot come back from heaven or hell and make an appearance on earth. So that traditional concept of ghosts is not biblical. Uh, it's appointed when a man wants to die. After you die as a believer, you go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. And we don't get supernatural divine abilities that allow us to just flit and float around between time, space, and matter and eternity and back and forth. That just doesn't happen either from hell or from heaven. However, demons and angels alike can manifest in human form, and they may take on human form of someone you know, you know either for an evil purpose to deceive in some way. You know, so people might have a demonic vision. They might not realize it's a demonic vision. They may think they're talking to good old grandpa and yet Satan's using that to deceive them and lead them astray or to scare them. You know, fear is not of the Lord, it's of the devil, and he uses that in many ways to cripple people. So there are all kinds of, you know, applications, if you will, of evil and encouragement, by the way. I believe the same thing can happen today, you know, through angels. But, uh, you know, once you understand your angelology and demonology, and once you properly understand your anthropology, biblically, then you can you can begin to explain what's happening today, or at least what people say is happening. You know, um, you know, it, it, through a biblical lens. So yeah, I you know, I don't uh, think that uh, you know demons can inhabit inanimate beings, but they can certainly in the unseen realm be opening and closing drawers, turning on and off lights. They can be causing you to trip or stumble they can they can be pretty evil if satan and his legion of demons choose to target you you know another category that explains a lot of occurrences and things that people say are shapeshifters now where do they fit into the whole 
demonic realm. Are they simply demons that transfer shaped or are they something else? Yeah, so I would encourage you to to watch last week's uh, prophecy night if you haven't already. I have I spent almost the whole time talking about shapeshifters, a whole category, and I uh, shapeshifting for those who may not know. I have a chapter on it in volume two, spiritoftheantichrist.org. You can look look for it, but it's called shapeshifters and skinwalkers. Skinwalker is the Native American term for shapeshifters. It's a, it's a more narrow term, and I deal with the history of the term and and just a fascinating story about that in in the book but shape-shifting just means the ability of a, a spiritual being to take on human or animal form so you can shape-shift as a you know an animal and uh, and so that's where we get the whole co- category of cryptids which is a term that is used to describe sort of undocumented or unknown species of what appear to be animals but yet we, we don't, we can't really, so I believe they're demonic. I think it's, you know, they can, you know, take on human form and they can take off human form. They can go back to the spirit realm. So yeah, that would be what shapeshifters are. And loosely speaking, uh, people will use the term shapeshifting as a verb. And I have used it this way to basically refer to any time a demon or, you know, fallen angel, if you will, takes on human form. So going back to Genesis 6, it's it would not be incorrect in a broad sense to say that those angels who left their proper domain shape-shifted, became, you know, in human form with all of the human, you know, elements that come with that such that they were able to then procreate with human women. So that's that's the way, you know, I'm I'm referring to shape-shifting. Yeah. Well, it explains a lot of human experiences and UFOs and different Bigfoot sightings, all of that can yeah. fall into that category. And yeah, you know, I, I have a, let me, if I can elaborate on that just for a second, I have obviously a chapter in the book on Bigfoot and other cryptids. And then last Tuesday night, we dealt with a, several examples of that. You know, the black eyed kids is something that's fascinated me for 10 years. I've haven't really spoken about it. I don't think, I mean, other than maybe in passing, and I certainly hadn't written about it, but I finally decided with this series that we're doing right now, it was time to throw it into the mix. I didn't, I didn't bring it up in the book with other cryptids. I brought up Bigfoot and Yeti and Chupacabras and all these other things. Uh, but I think you know it's undeniable now that that is another tool of the devil, those, those black-eyed kids. But you know what's funny about the chapter on Bigfoot is that you know some people, including colleagues and, and people in the prophecy world that I really respect and that I've you know been on their shows at times and, and the Lord's opened doors with some of their ministries that are a lot larger than NBW ministries. You know I know for a fact uh, that some of them have you know seen that chapter title and because they've never studied it or thought about it and in their mind you know Bigfoot is still a category of a tinfoil hat you know crazy person. They've they've kind of frowned upon there's like, Oh, why did he bring that in there? And to those people, all I would say is read the whole books and understand that you're not going to agree with all of my conclusions. There may be things that you need to look into a little further. And, uh, and I could be wrong. I'm obviously I'm not infallible. I could be wrong about some of my conclusions in there, but again, it goes back to your angelology and demonology and your anthropology. If you understand that first, if you use the Bible as our starting point, then there's no reason to just hastily dismiss the concept, say, of Bigfoot, because first of all, it is documented millions of times over centuries 
I mean, this is, this is something that's going on there and it's not, you know, a biological creature that's undiscovered. It's something demonic. So, uh, you know, I think, I think I'd say, give me some latitude. I, I know we touched on some controversial subjects there. UFO is another one. Now, obviously, UFOs are much more palatable today ever since uh, 2017 when the New York Times broke that story. And then Tucker Carlson, you know, you know, helped, uh, you know, really, I think, make that more of a, a, a OK subject to talk about. But, uh, you know, any of the subjects in the books that people think at first glass or uh, pass are like, wow, that's, you know, I'm not sure about that. I, I'm OK with that. Uh, the big picture is there's a Luciferian conspiracy taking place to take over the world and usher in a one-world religious, political, and economic system that will ultimately be led by the Antichrist. Let's start there, and then with that premise, let's try to make sense of what's happening in the world. Well, I was going to say also that people need to remember the evening news because we hear things and then we quickly forget about it. I remember a few years ago, there was a 12-year-old or, you know, around that age girl in Wisconsin who committed murder of one of her classmates to appease Slender Man. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's yep. a real thing, whether people, it was real to her, whether yeah. people want deny it or remember it or whatever. It, it, it's real. It happens. Yeah. And Slender Man, you know, in my mind is, uh, is, is a very strong candidate for being a demonic manifestation to, to help, you know, evil. And that's a perfect example of it. Now, you know, Slenderman is one of the more recent cryptids that's sort of hit the pop, you know, popular strain of thought. Um, you know, there's some research out there that suggests it might've been fabricated and then just kind of got a life of its own. But I think from the firsthand accounts that I've read, I still think it it falls into that demonic category, uh, like some of these others. But well, it fits. You know, what's the difference between that and a uh, skinwalker? I mean, right. a little different, but yeah, no, totally agree. Yeah, it certainly it certainly is. You know, theologically and theoretically possible. I think uh, sometimes deception involves layers upon layers and lies about lies, and so. I'm always, you know, tentative because, you know, you know, you you might someday be able to trace the origins of it to just some deliberate lie, but that won't explain. I mean, you can't claim that all of the eyewitnesses of, say, Slenderman were on some type of psychotropic drug and were seeing weird visions. I mean, that's 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 defies credulity even worse. So they're seeing something. They all give similar accounts, independent of one another. They all look the same. And uh, to me, the only explanation that comports with Scripture is that it's, uh, you know, demonic manifestations of some kind. So all those are demons? They would fall into that category? Well, again, it depends on uh, how you classify evil spirits. Some people would say they are, um, you know, potentially fallen angels. And a class of fallen angel. Uh, some people say they're demons. Uh, if you distinguish between those two, I don't, but uh, I may someday. I know to me it's a dis- almost a distinction without a difference. It's a functional distinction, but at the end of the day, it just comes down to classifications. It's kind of like, you know, he's a lieutenant colonel and he's a major, or they're both American servicemen, you know, that kind of thing, servicemen or women, right? 
you know, it's different classifications. They have different roles to play in Satan's army, but they're all evil spirits. So I think if you, if you watch closely, if I can sort of tell on myself here, in the next, you know, few months and years, you're probably going to find me tending toward the term evil spirit as a term of choice more so than demon, only because I know that in our camp of dispensational Bible-believing Christians, demon means different things to different people. Again, some people use demon as a synonym for Nephilim, the offspring of this unholy intersection. Some people use demon as a synonym for fallen angel. Uh, so it's kind of a cop-out, but evil spirit is sort of a catch-all phrase. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. My husband and I, we just started watching, um, uh, what was that that show back in the 90s, the uh, Scully Mulder? Um, oh, uh, Twilight Zone. No. Uh, oh. No, the Sc other, uh, not FX, it was on the FX station. Um, with Scully, but I, those, all of those stories, as we're wa watching them again, it's just funny how it almost seems like they're telling us exactly all of the, you know, all of these things, you know, the Yeti, the, yeah. the spaceships, they're all in there. And it's just the X -Files. crazy. X-Files. Yeah. There you go. I found it just as you, I knew, cause I know people are screaming at the radio right now going, it's X-Files. How could you forget that? So I thought we better, we can't leave that one alone. We got to go back and remember what yeah. that was. But yeah, it's just crazy how some of those stories are more believable now than, you know, back then it was passed off as, oh, this is just a show. This is just yeah. tinfoil yeah. hat stuff. But if you go back and watch some of this stuff, it almost sounds like they're mixing truth with a little bit of lies and then just putting it on the television, laughing. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, absolutely they are. And if you understand the Luciferian, uh, you know, uh, credo, um, some people call it the karmic credo, but it's basically their view that they've got to tell you what's what they're doing mm -hmm. in secret code before they do it kind of in plain sight but you never really see it until after the fact um yeah. so you know let me let me tell you you know this alleged age-old debate between whether art imitates life or life imitates art it's no debate in my mind art imitates life always will um and so you know hollywood is a key outpost for the satanic luciferian agenda and the stuff that they do there they're not making it up and then people see that no oh, that's an interesting idea let me try that no they're yeah. replicating it because they've already seen it in life and they want to expose more and more people uh to it so that's the case with x-files i think it was just a way of sort of bringing some of those things to the public mindset mm -hmm. i agree yeah, how can they come out with two blockbuster or even three blockbuster movies of the same theme at the same time? Unless if there's, I don't know, something going on there, not collaboration, but they're imitating life. I yeah, and I think it's even more it's even worse than collaboration in some cases. Of course, it's not monolithic. They're not controlling every single studio and every single producer and every single production but it's a lot more controlled than people think. And there are people pulling the strings within the entertainment industry, telling you what, you know, to do and what themes they want to address, you know, get the word out. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. I think it's like you said, I've heard you say too, is that 
once you've reached a certain status or a certain level, there's a good chance that you've kind of compromised somewhere. Um, so like some of these movie directors and things like that, I think I listen to you quite often. So <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of, you know, I got myself in trouble uh, with uh, last week with some of my comments about Tucker Carlson. But, you know, all I can say is, look, do your research. You know, people have latched onto him because a lot of what he said, maybe even most of what he says, we resonate with and we agree with the statements. And that, so that's fine. We want, Anytime we can get the truth out, that's, that's not a bad thing. But what happens is without realizing it, people become conditioned to his on-air persona and they begin to idolize him and think of him as a godly Christian, conservative, Republican, you know, all the categories lumped into one. And it really isn't that hard, frankly, in this day to do a little research and dig a little deeper and find out about his family background and what schools he went to and what, you know, what roles his children play in government. And, and there's all kinds of, and because he's been involved in lawsuits before, including not the least of which, by the way, the Dominion lawsuit. Now they settled before he had to be called to the stand, but he did depositions and those kinds of things. Uh, I think he did depositions, but he certainly got some testimony that is, you know, available through FOIA requests uh, in some form or fashion. And I've seen some of that. And the guy was a foul mouthed, uh, just not kind person, uh, similar to Trump. He used, he had some favorite cuss words that he used that are pretty disgusting. And he frequently called people he's seen, uh, oh, I know what it was, emails that we, they had to release a bunch of internal emails from Fox News uh, around the time of the election in which he was just, you know, his language was worse than a sailor. And again, look, I'm not judging. We're all sinners saved by grace. And we, you know, I'm not even questioning or even addressing the issue of, is he a believer or not? That's beside the point. All I'm saying is, you know, if you form your opinion about someone because of a, you know, one hour a night TV document, you know, pr program, you're missing some things. And so let's be intellectually honest enough to say, he was controlled opposition. He may really believe some of the things he said. I hope he does. Uh, but let's not forget, long before he came to work for Fox News, he was with MSNBC. He was with CNN. He's been with other networks. Um, so, you know, give credit where credit's due. He helped expose a lot of truth. He certainly led the way in exposing some of the lies about the election in 2020. Um, but I believe all of that was just controlled opposition they they got to throw us a bone they got to give us our our heroes they got to keep us fighting and if we're going to fight against the progressives and the liberals we've got to have our you know our figurehead leader that we can latch on to and 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 like but i said all along and i said the same thing about o'reilly and glenn beck and others that he's controlled opposition they're going to use him for a while and then when they're done with him they'll cast him aside and they'll bring in another conservative you know, person that they're going to use as their spokesman, yeah. if you will. Which they've done. <laughs> they've cast him aside. Yeah, they have. Yeah, absolutely. No, they did. And so when I saw that news, of course, I don't have any inside information or no, I didn't see it coming. Maybe some people did, you know, in terms of when it happened. But when I saw the news, I go, surprise, surprise, <laughs> surprise. You know, who'd been saying that's going to happen for several years? Uh, me, you know, so and it just and it happened. So. And apparently we won't be hearing too much more of him because they didn't actually fire him. They just pulled him off the air, but he's locked into a contract into next year at least. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he can't probably non-compete. He probably can't, you know, do some stuff. 
anybody or even have a podcast? Well, I mean, you know, uh, so, I mean, good for him, right? He gets to make, he's, he was making $20 million a year, uh, 15 to 20 million a year. Uh, and uh, according to records. And uh, so, you know, he gets to make that for doing nothing for a year. Pretty, pretty nice gig, right? I mean, I'd take that gig. I don't know. <laughs> Except like Paul said, I cannot but speak. So I would, I would have to keep speaking. So. With the large bank going down again, the second one in the U.S. Uh, Third one. Looking yeah. for Christ's return. Hopefully it's coming soon, but it might not for a while. And uh, I think you've talked, well, I'm sure you have talked some about us being prepared as believers for, you know, whatever comes. And could you speak to that just for... Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I do believe that the economic indicators are about as grave as we've ever seen. They are as grave as we've ever seen them. Um, I, you know, I've been following this every release ever since we woke up. I can remember back in Great Last Days Deception, which I wrote in 2012, talking about how America is on life support, the economy is on life support, and it's just a matter of when they decide to call the time of death. Um, but they're propping it up right now through these artificial, you know, qualitative easing measures. Um, but yeah, it's it's reached a much more significant tipping point here in the last few weeks. Um, and, you know, Randy and I talk about it on our weekly World Events Update. And uh, we actually went to lunch yesterday with a group of men and we're talking quite a bit about the economic aspects of it. You know, there's so many things happening all at once. Obviously, that I think the next big turn of events to watch for is the rolling out of a digital ID. And notice I say digital ID, not the CBDC, because the digital ID has to predate. They have to have a individual identification digitally for every person in order to attach that to a financial transactional mechanism like the central bank digital currency. So they go together. And the real danger of the CBDC, as I've been talking about in multiple conferences, you can go to our website and look up our free videos. And I've got at least three that I can think of off the top of my head, one pretty recently in March, where I've talked extensively about CBDCs and the coming control grid. But um, the real danger of it isn't so much the, the financial aspect as it is the loss of freedom and control. So they're going to be rolling that out. You know, the F, the uh, uh, the Federal Reserve has already, you know, prepared the Fed now, which is to roll out in July. The Fed now is kind of the back end architecture that will make something like a digital ID and CBDCs possible. The Fed now uh, is essentially a mechanism that allows uh, transactions that take place digitally to be instant instantaneous rather than right now, if you do a wire transfer or you do an EFT transfer, or certainly if you write a check or make a deposit um, that it can take anywhere from one to three days or, or, or longer. Um, but uh, they put holds on checks and those types of things. And, but even, you know, wire transfers, I can remember sitting at multiple closings. We've bought and sold a lot of houses through the years on our journey where, you know, you're waiting around the closing table for a couple hours for the funds to clear, even though it's a wire transfer, because you don't want to, 
make sure, you know, you don't want to leave until you, everything's clear. You know, they don't give you the keys to the house until the funds are there. Well, with the fed now, uh, system, it's all going to be instantaneous bank to bank and individuals within each bank. So that if I want to transfer a hundred dollars, uh, you know, to Ron and Teresa, it's instant. And so that is all part of the puzzle too. The fed now is not the CBDC and the CBDC is not the digital ID, but they're all interconnected and part of a much bigger nefarious scheme to, to usher in full scale, full spectrum, global control, exactly like Revelation 13 says is going to happen during the tribulation. Now, we won't be here during that time, but it doesn't mean we won't have to suffer through some of the preliminary phases of that technology that will become after the Antichrist takes the throne and after the rapture, uh, that will become the mark of the beast. So, you know, as far as preparedness, I say right now people need to, to, to have discussions with their family, with their children, with their spouses, and make a draw a line in the sand and decide, are you going to sign up for the digital ID or not? And I would not do it. It's not a moral issue per se. It's certainly not related to the mark of the beast in, in the sense that it will be during the tribulation. But to me, once you cross that line and you've signed up for the digital ID, you've lost all control. And yes, I'm aware that we're all being tracked and, and followed now, but it's different now because now they put, they, they track everything digitally. So that's this conversation, that's emails, that's texts, that's internet traffic, everything. And they put it into our bit bucket. So every one of us has a bit bucket and they put it all in there. And then once they've captured the data, then they can engage in data mining where they run algorithms to pull out data. Uh, and that's bad enough. But yeah. with the new digital ID, it will be instantaneous so that if you're traveling and you get to a roadblock and they don't want you to go any further, they have instant access to what you've been buying, what you've been saying on social media, where you've traveled, what you've been eating, your medicines. It's all tied together. Uh, your carbon footprint, your medical footprint, your social footprint, um, and they'll be able to track it. So that to me is is the, the thing that 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 I think has my attention on the horizon is what's going to happen um, financially. And all of these collapses that we see happening even today uh, are, to me, a harbinger of, you know, something much more significant. And even that is going to be just one piece of the puzzle, which I've talked about at length, uh, of bringing down America. So they're going to use a cumulative effort of multiple weapons, if you will, to bring down America, one of which will be economic. Oh, my mind is racing. <laughs> I do have one question about that. Um, you said that a line in the sand would be not to sign up for it. But will we have a choice necessarily? Because we didn't have a choice with the social security number or even with the driver's license that were issued it just is what it is will they well, sign up automatically yeah you do you do have a choice for all those things uh i know people who chose not to sign up for the social security card for their babies when they were born really and to this okay. day still don't have them now it's extremely complicated and difficult and if you can imagine not having a social security card you know, it's not, it's not against the law not to have one. They may make you think it is, but it's not. Um, 
And uh, but man, it just creates a whole new set of problems if, as you get older and try to get your driver's license, try to get your get a job, try to get into school. Back in the day when I was first in academics before FERPA laws, they used social security numbers as your student ID. And so if you didn't have one and you show up your first day of class or to enroll and and the registrar is going to go, well, I don't know what to do with this. You don't have a social security card. Now, how do I? It's, it's So it it's complicated, but it's just like the vaccine. They, you know, you did not have to have it. Now it came at a great cost. You might lose your job. You might not get to travel overseas. You might not get to go into the hospital and say goodbye to your dying father or mother. Uh, there are costs for standing up for the truth. But it, it, as far as I know, they didn't put a gun to anybody's head and force you under penalty of death to take the vaccine. And the same thing's going to be true of the digital ID. Um, you know, uh, they, they're, they're going to make it, they're going to use a carrot and a stick, just like they did with the, the experimental bioinjection, the death jab. They're going to say, they're going to incentivize it. If you'll be one of the early adopters and you sign up for this, we're going to give you tons of money. We're going to give you tokens. We're going to give you all this stuff. Uh, and that'll get a bunch of people to sign up. Then they'll start using the stick and, you know, say, well, if you don't have a digital ID, you can't pay your taxes. And if you can't pay your property taxes, we're taking away your home. You know, so they'll use both, but it's not, I don't think they're going to get to the point until you get to the tribulation, at least, uh, where they've, you know, you either take this or you die. You take this or we chop your head off. I think they're just going to, you know, compel people and coerce people to take it. Uh, and that's what I mean about stealing yourself. You have to decide even if yeah. I'm not going to do it. And, um, you know, I don't judge anybody that makes comes to a different conclusion than I do on that. Again, it, it's not particularly or at least explicitly a moral issue, but um, but I think you need to think through it because it's once you've done that, forget it. You'll never get out of the matrix again once you've done that. Well, and two, I guess my example about the driver's license, that's a voluntary thing. We don't Nobody's putting a gun to our head and saying no. license. No, and you know, believe me, we've thought about all of these things uh, through the years. And you know, there's a certain part of of every awake person, you know, and, and by awake I mean you know, First Thessalonians five six sense of awake, uh, that w contemplates, you know, what if? What if I just get rid of my smartphones and get rid of my driver's license and just drop out of society? And 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 people have done that, sort of the Ian Rand model, if you will. But, you know, for, for me, and as intriguing as that is, and, and really enticing as that is, for me, we made the decision that the time is short. You know, our core value at NBW Ministries is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. And I can do more to get the gospel out through some of these mechanisms and means. You know, if I didn't have a driver's license, I can't drive and pull my trailer across the country to these conferences. So that creates a you know, different headache. Well, maybe I can overcome that headache, but then you start piling on all these others. And at some point you go, I'm just going to eyes wide open, play the game. But I tell you what, back to your original question, Mike, if the other shoe drops, we're going to be way ahead of most people because, you know, we don't have to, you know, re react to the, you know, the, the, this concept that uh, SWAT teams and FBI groups have called the flashbang, you're probably familiar with it, or you've seen it on TV, where if they're going to go into a room like a, a big drug 
house or apartment and they they want a, the element of surprise, they'll bust open the door and throw in one of those grenades that makes a loud flash and a loud noise and fills the room with smoke. And, and then they come in immediately after it with their headgear on. And while the people in the room are still dazed and confused from that instantaneous thing, they're slapping the cuffs on them. You know, I think for a lot of people, when the other shoe drops, they're going to have that flashbang effect. But for those of us that are awake, even though we're playing the game right now, you know, we haven't dropped out of society, but because of knowledge, we're going to be a step ahead and, and, and we can respond, I think more, you know, more quickly. Yeah. Our small group has had similar conversations to this. You know, what are we going to do if, Yeah, I mean, you need to have bug out bags, you need to have bug out plans. Uh, Again, I'll point people to our uh, modest little 12 page uh, preparedness uh, document that we put together. We've actually had it for years. We've we've expanded it from a family document to something just broader and more generic. Uh, That's on our website. If you go to our homepage and just scroll through the uh, highlight carousel, you'll see it there. It says click here to download the the Not Be Works Preparedness Guide. That'll at least give you a starting point of things to think through and, and supplies to have, but you need to have contingency plans. You need to think about the what ifs, like you just said, Mike. Um, you know, if you only had 30 minutes or even 15 minutes to get out, where would you go? Now, most of the scenarios that I think we've contemplated don't involve, you know, fleeing um, because we've intentionally chosen a place that we could live you know, for a long time if we had to. But if a particular type of weapon or nuclear bomb or something happens and the wind's blowing the right way and it's nearby, you know, then yeah, there's no place that's immune to everything. So we might have to flee. So we still have a bug out plan and, you know, bug out bags. Uh, But if you live in a sort of a metropolitan area or traditional subdivision, you you especially need to think through the what ifs of, of fleeing. So that, yeah. go ahead. I was, uh, like I said, my mind is racing, but I know how I do we talk the whole time, but I'm yeah. not going to. How do we cover everything? But I had mentioned to you that case on phone. Is that something, the walkie talkie thing? Yeah, I'm not familiar with that particular, you know, model, but, um, you know, we have invested in some communications, some comms, you know, that, uh, you know, we had for years, we had different walkie talkies that have for, you know, that have locally, you know, small range around the property or around the house, that kind of thing. And then, uh, you know, I've been blessed to have Randy as a friend the last few years, and he's very knowledgeable in that area. So we've, you know, expanded and we now have a GMRS radio and a ham radio. Again, you have to be a licensed theoretically to have a ham to, to operate a ham radio, but you know, end of the world as we know it scenario, I don't think they're going to be sending the FCC regulators around to start, you know, writing people up for using a ham radio without a license. I think it's sort of all bets off at that point. So I, I think in a broad sense, you know, considering things like satellite phones, um, other alternative means of communication are, is not a bad idea at all. Um, you know, they, they, everything costs money. So you have to come up with your list of essentials and also the likelihood that you're going to need it. So some scenarios to me, while they may be somewhat likely like an EMP, 
the cost involved of trying to insulate yourself against every, uh, you know, implication of an EMP is so difficult and, and expensive that you just have to say, at least this is my view. And I know other people that have, you know, entire Faraday rooms underneath their house. I, I know people that have that. I've been in one of them and I, I'm jealous in some ways, but for me, you know, we've sort of said, okay, I weigh the likelihood and the cost. And I say, that's the one I'm just going to not worry about. If the God, you know, if that happens, you know, I'm left with, you know, trusting God. We always trust God in every scenario, some of which you also have to prepare for. Remember, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the Lord delivery is of the Lord. Well, he knows my heart. And if, you know, if something like that happens, he's not going to say, oh, you should have had a horse. So now I'm going to make you suffer. He's just going to, I think, know my heart. So, but other things, uh, even though the likelihood may be rare, it may be extremely unlikely that that type of, you know, scenario will play out. The cost to prepare for it is so simple, you know, why wouldn't you check that box, you know? So having food and water and um, even things like having gasoline, if you do have to flee, you know, uh, what we do, rather than always worrying about making sure we fill up our gas every time we go out anywhere, is we have 30 gallons of gas on property, six five-gallon jugs that we recycle every six months. And, you know, that way at any given time, if there's a crisis and we have to get out and, you know, we have multiple generation family here that lives here. We got one, two, three, four adults, four driving adults. And then during summers and breaks, when the college kids are home, we have more than that. So we had, you know, four or five, possibly six cars you know, we can at least top off most of the cars in an emergency, but gas has only about a six to 12 month shelf life. So gasoline. So you want to make sure about every six, eight months, you pour that into your cars in your driveway and go fill them up again and set them aside. Cause you don't want to have to use them and find out it's two year old gas. And it's just going to make your car break down three miles down the road. So, I mean, those are things to think about um, uh, that are fairly inexpensive and simple um, you may not need them, but at least you got them. Yeah, very good. This radio was something Randy suggested. That's why I asked about it. Yeah. And $60, it seemed really reasonable with no license. And, you know, it'd be a way for us to communicate with Brooke that we can't get there, you know, in a minute. Or yeah, especially in Florida, because it's so flat and you know, the problem in Colorado is we invested as a church, we invested in a bunch of radios like that, that had a 40 mile uh, radius distance, but the, the mountains, you know, anything that obstructs the direct site, it, it messes it up. So some people could communicate, some people couldn't, it just kind of depends what direction you're going and whether there's a mountain in the way. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, let me put it this way. If Randy suggested it, you should think seriously about it. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Kim's been really quiet. Did you have any questions? Hi. Um, I did have a question. Um, so when we are raptured, will the world left behind still go on as normal that's a great question and actually 
you know, there's differing opinions on that. Uh, I guess it depends what you mean on norm by normal. Um, the best illustration I can think of is 9-11 or now, you know, the pre-planned pandemic. In both cases, it really was a life changer. Now, you know, it was normal in the sense of people still slept in their own beds at night. They still watched TV for coverage, which, by the way, was what they wanted you to do. <laughs> um, and you know, those kinds of things. But it clearly was a new paradigm in both cases. The world changed. And in the case of 9-11, we all were glued to our TVs for days on end. It was 24-hour coverage. Same thing with the pandemic, only it was worse because we were locked down. So I think after the rapture, uh, you know, it will be another, you know, changing of the world. And there will be all kinds of chaos that ensues in the immediate aftermath. Because if you think about the fact that all Christians are going to suddenly be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, that includes pilots, truckers, people sitting at strategic computers that run, you know, dams and, and airlines and uh, military establishments and missile silo. I mean, anything could, I mean, it's just going to be utter chaos. And I think but like other examples that we've had on a smaller scale, it will, you know, it, things will get back to some sense of normalcy uh, in the sense that, according to Scripture, that's when I believe the Antichrist is going to rise up. He's going to formulate this alliance and, and eventually a one-world system. And, you know, if you watch the, um, the Left Behind, the latest Left Behind movie, um, I think it it was a probably a fairly realistic portrayal of what things will be like after that. They're going to be a great deception. Uh, my video, uh, one minute after the rapture, um, uh, which uh, uh, is I've preached several times at different conferences over the years, but it goes through ten things that will be true on earth one minute after the rapture, and I think it describes you know the great deception, the great chaos, all these types of things. Um, but I think eventually. If we understand scripture, we're going to see things settle back into a new normal, which will be a one world government, one world religion, one world commerce, and, you know, eventually the mark of the beast. But, um, you know, it, it's it's going to take time to, to get to that. So I think it's sort of a yes and a no. It's not like the rapture puts an end to the world, but it definitely will change the world and it'll never go back. Like like you know people like we have cell phone everybody has a cell phone now so when the rapture happens and the christians are taken up and then everybody still has their cell phones and they're communicating oh my gosh what happened to you know her and him and and then um um when we come back after the rapture correct we come back at the second coming at the end of the tribulation, right? Well, will those cell phones and things still be, do you think, existing? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I played a clip in uh, one of my conferences, I think the one in Orlando, in fact, uh, in my message on uh, transhumanism. can't remember what it was called now. But I played a clip of a guy from Nokia who the CEO of Nokia 
talking about how cell phones, he thinks by 2030 are going to be implanted into bodies. So you won't actually have to hold a device in your hand. It'll be part of that brain computer interface that, you know, Elon Musk and some of the others are talking about. So, um, by the way, I'm glad you, I, I didn't think you were going this direction, but I, the way you were starting to ask the question, I thought, is she going to ask if our cell phones will work in heaven and we'll be able to call back? No. I wish they would. Yeah, but... yeah I wish they would. No, uh, yeah, I, I, I think the changes that will take place during you know after the rapture will be not necessarily limited to direct results of the rapture but will just be technologies that are already being rolled out and will just be rolled out globally at that point uh but yeah it'll be a different world for sure mm -hmm. social media will go completely ballistic more than it is now what will social media yeah oh yeah social media go ballistic for sure yeah um I mean, we haven't even talked about AI, and we probably need to wrap up here in a second. But, you know, that's another thing that I'm going to be getting into possibly tomorrow night. It depends. I haven't finished my outline for tomorrow night at Prophecy Night. But uh, that's another whole aspect of evil that's not, strictly speaking, evil spirits or demons and all that. But it's it's another thing that I think by the time the tribulation comes around, Kim, it's going to be a whole game changer. And to me, that's how you explain passages like the image of the beast, you know, uh, you know, you're going to have the antichrist, but then you're going to have hundreds, perhaps thousands of other capital A antichrists, and you don't know which the real one is, right? They all look just like him. And with technology, I mean, you, you just don't know. So, so yeah, that's another whole aspect of, I think, the signs of the times that indicate we're getting closer and closer. But, um, if unless there's another burning question, I'd, I'd like to just kind of wrap up with some positive okay. uh, things because we've talked about some heavy things. But I, I so appreciate your group, and I, I love the the Bible questions that we started with, and some of the questions about salvation and the gospel. But you know, the bottom line is the the, the Word of God paints a very clear picture of where we are headed. the The Bible tells a story from Genesis to Revelation. It's the it's God's plan of the ages that culminates in Christ coming back and making all things new. And along the way, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's very clear in Scripture. And particularly in the lead up right to the end of the age, things are going to get especially bad. So we're not all doom and gloom. We're not here making stuff up, trying to, you know, like Chicken Little say, the sky is falling. We're simply saying what Scripture says. And therefore, it you know it behooves us to do what Proverbs twenty two three says, which is be wise and prepare for it. So uh, I think people need to first of all focus on their spiritual house. If you are listening to this uh, a podcast um, and you've never trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, that's priority number one, because that's something that there are no second chances. You can't die or you know and, and somehow stand at the gates and say, well, I meant to. <laughs> It will, there is no meant to's in heaven. It's it's now or never. Today is the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow. Life is but a vapor, James says. It's here today and, and gone tomorrow. So deal with that first. Recognize that a loving God provided a way of redemption so that all of fallen mankind can be made right with him once again. And he did that through the sacrificial death of his son and our Savior. And if you'll trust him as the living Savior, the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave, and, and trust in him alone for salvation, you can be saved. Um, after that, 
then I think the issue becomes, you know, don't panic, don't be paralyzed by fear, don't be, you know, obsessed with what you can't control, but be alert, aware, be awake, like First Thessalonians 5, 6 says, you know, we are not of the night, uh, we're of the day. And so we don't want to be asleep like unbelievers, we want to be awake and, you know, recognize that there's much to be done, um, both personally and in terms of um uh, sharing the, the gospel with others, uh, you know, give out Spirit of the Antichrist. One of the great things about those books is that, you know, even though they you know, are, are quite, um, you know, interesting and to cover a lot of really fascinating topics and subjects that kind of all come together into, you know, two-volume set, at the end of the day, it's an, it's an exposing people to the gospel, and they hear the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel. And so that's one way um, I can't tell you how many we've given out. You know, every time we have a repairman come out to the property or something, you know, that we, you know, and he sees my office and or sees the shirt I'm wearing. And I, you know, are you into, I can, I can pretty much find a topic they're interested in. Are you interested in UFOs? Are you interested in Bigfoot? Are you interested in Klaus Schwab? Are you interested in the World Economic Forum? And if they say yes to any of those, hey, let me encourage you to read this book, you know? So uh, give those out. And by the way, we've always, uh, we we give out a ton of them, but if you have an opportunity to you know give out several, call Brooke uh, at my office at the one eight hundred number, and we get we have discounts for ten or more. You know we're not trying to make rich off of these things; we're just trying to get the word out. Um, and so I think you know for believers, there's much work to be done. Time is short. Don't become depressed by all this stuff. This is the most exciting time in history to be alive. Because we're closer than ever. We can just taste it to the return of the Lord when we're going to see him face to face. And it truly is the blessed hope. And hope realized is, is amazing. It's when faith becomes sight. And uh, I can't wait for that day. So, you know, thank you guys for for letting me uh, join into your, your small group. And we'll do it again sometime. But uh, it's, I'm really grateful for you helping us get this word out. Amen. Thank, thank you. you. Yes. Thank you so much. We loved it. Very good evening. Thank you. Yes. Awesome. Well, God bless. I'm, I'm going to stop the recording, then I'll say goodbye off air here. Okay. Okay.